1: Hello and welcome back to the podcast it is always up to speed with Formula One it is Thursday May 12th May 13th I don't know I've forgotten anyways welcome back to show Mark Daily, Mark Hamilton here to recap all the latest news from around Formula One Mr. H how's it going welcome back Tim and I missed you on Sunday night bro you totally ghosted us with reason but you know it. it just, it just wasn't the same without you. You had a great
0: show. You did not need to be there. And that's always the fear, right? Is when you miss out on an opportunity to record a podcast like Tim and it goes really well. Uh, Did they need me? I kind of felt, I felt a little bit like Lewis Hamilton at Bath Rain. We had COVID (laughs) at the end of the 2021 season. Sorry, the 2020 season. like, oh my gosh, George Russell's going to kill it in that car. And I'm not going to get invited back. But you guys did a great job breaking down. What was less of an interesting race, although you guys found some really interesting angles to attack, but more of a fascinating race weekend.
1: Totally, totally. Hey, you, know, you and I have been super busy the last couple of days, and we didn't even really talk too much about the the, the Grand Prix offline. I wanted to get your, your take on it. What did you think about the track itself at uh, Miami, the, the Miami Autodrome or whatever they call it, the Miami Sound Machine? Well, maybe not that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm really glad you actually asked because one, I like to talk and two, I really want to talk about this subject. <laughs> you're if you're you good at both of those things, up, by the way. Well, so are you. I learned from the best. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you almost specifically this question because you and I didn't get to have this conversation. We really haven't talked this week because we're both so busy generally. I, I think I have to kind of detach myself from social media a little bit mm-hmm. because if I talk about Miami in, in the context of, social media, I have a fairly negative perspective on the weekend. And I really got absorbed into, I think, especially a lot of the, uh, I would say self-declared traditionalists on Twitter, especially in the UK, right, who were quick right. to criticize every angle and every dimension of this Grand Prix, whether it was the fact that they had a beach set up with thousand-dollar tickets, or whether they had a fake marina, or they had a gondola and all these. But different did you dimensions. expect anything
1: else in Miami? Come on, come on. Like, like yeah. what were people expecting? That was completely on brand, if you ask me. It it totally was. Again, you're talking about
0: a state that is home to Universal Studios. You Disney World, it's 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 a kind of a mecca for tourism and excitement, and it's an event state, and Miami is an event city. Right, that's what it thrives on. Totally hosting big time events, and ultimately, I can't criticize. I don't know that I enjoyed seeing it. I wish I could have been there and experienced it in person, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to criticize the race organizers because they wanted to do something to make their event specifically unique. Ultimately, I thought. I thought the pricing was a little bit crazy, but at Mm -hmm. the same time, they sold every ticket by the time they got to race day. And again, they have every right to monetize this event in every conceivable way. And they certainly did that. But again, if people are willing to pay for all of these added experiences, once they're within the racetrack, then all the power to the race organizers for being able to monetize it in such a way. And I think a lot of people in the US especially were particularly critical about the pricing. And I think most fans probably couldn't afford a weekend at Miami. And I get that. And, you know, Miami's just not necessarily for every fan and formula one has never proclaimed to be the motorsport of the masses or the motorsport of the people. It's, it's always tried to frame itself as something of an elitist product and so be it, but you and I have both also shared the best practice in the past many times that Montreal is expensive. Miami is ex- expensive. If you live in North America, there are some really affordable races. If you can get yourself to Western Europe, whether you get to Hungary or whether you get to the traditional German races, which will be back or Spain or Britain, there are some affordable races there. So this well, race would What, what about unique. Coda,
1: right? E- even that's going to yeah. be like more affordable compared to Miami. Totally, totally.
0: So I didn't have a problem with the event as a whole. I did have a bit of a problem with the race in the sense that it wasn't particularly exciting and I Mm -hmm. didn't miss not talking about it, but ultimately I can't criticize the track because I feel like the crack, the crack, (laughs) I feel like the track designers did a pretty good job of building a track with what they had to work with, right? They didn't have a blank canvas. So I can't blame the the race organizers and I can't blame the track designers because they were forced to build a track in the outskirts of a football stadium and circuit. Like I I feel like it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. I didn't like the aggregate. It was a learning experience. They're probably going to resurface the track, maybe learned some lessons from jetta which seems to have a perfect aggregate regardless of time of day or temperature Mm -hmm. but yeah it was it was exciting both you and i have been looking forward to seeing this for a lot of time i had a lot of fun consuming all the content that was coming out of it i just can't be particularly critical it just wasn't a super exciting race
1: yeah you know it's funny too because uh, i I couldn't help but think is that the the, the longer that race went on i kept uh, thinking you know this race really needs a safety car (laughs) yes
0: and i just assumed we'd see many of them and we did
1: it i know and and we was funny too because i was, I was chatting with uh, there, there's a bit of a twitter exchange uh, between myself and i forget who it was you know uh, you know forgive me just the other day and it, it was just kind of funny you know because you know tim and i showed a little bit of love to george russell for sticking out the way that he did and gambling on the uh, on the safety car and, and it paid off for him and then you know it, it was funny because my, my my take on that is that it, it's almost a I don't want to say a desperation move, but it, I mean George was really—it it was a risk. It was a calculated risk that something was w- w- like that would hand, for you what would happen. But I couldn't help but thinking, yeah. is this where we're at with Mercedes in 2022? That, that one of their drivers has to like gamble on a safety car to just try and get up a little bit higher in the points, and I, I guess we are. But just going back to the track itself, what I was com- particularly impressed with is, much like yourself, they had this area in and around Hard Rock Stadium. And somehow they were able to build a track in there. And I, I couldn't help but looking at the pictures like over the course of the weekend and, and the weeks and months leading up to it. And but I was particularly impressed when I saw the, the first pictures from FP1 and all that. I'm just like, wow, this looks almost like this looks too good for a street circuit. Yeah, you know, it, it looked yeah. it had more of a. I, I don't even want to call it a street circuit because it's almost more of a temporary circuit because it's, um, you know, it, it's not like they closed off a portion of downtown Miami to run this race. So I, I found it interesting and, and really cool from that point of view. But the track itself, certainly, it needs some t- tweaks to it. Uh, obviously, the surface was an issue. I mean, w- when you're talking about things like they're repaving it during the middle of the night, because the cars are just chewing up the uh, the, the pavement, that's just that that's just craziness. But um, yeah, you know, and, and the other thing too, is that I couldn't help but thinking afterwards, like sort of maybe not right after the race but maybe Monday, Tuesday, just kind of reflecting back on the weekend as a whole. And the, the question I asked myself or the the statement I was making is that, yeah, it didn't live up to the hype, but they set the bar awfully high that they would have needed a very, very special race to do that, to really to live up uh, to all all of the hype. You know Maybe some of the things we'd seen earlier this year, like Charles and Max fighting like wheel to wheel over the past couple of laps. And, and after the safety car, it looked like that might happen for a couple of laps. And then ultimately, it, it just sort of came down to that if Charles can get close enough and he sort of got within drs range there with a couple of lapses just like if he can do it he's going to get one chance and that chance never came and then you know i think he finished what was about three and a half seconds off uh, max in the end you can just tell he just knew that it wasn't going to happen so but it was what it was it was it it was good for it was good for what it was and hopefully next year that they can make some improvements and the, the the product on the track will match up with all the hype off the track let's put it that way
0: it feels like a perfect time to actually interject or interject, inject a question from one of our our listeners All that right. is very on, very on theme with what we're talking about here. But McKay Mortenson, one of our great listeners, uh, wrote to us and asked, "Do y'all think that continuing to race at hybrid street circuits such as Jeddah and Miami are a sustainable approach, both economically and environmentally, especially considering driver safety concerns at tracks of that nature?" So you just touched on something that. That I think is a really interesting point, and mm-hmm. probably something we could unspool for quite a while. I don't know if anyone got the turbo uh, analogy there, uh, metaphor. I don't know if that's correct, but turbo spool unspool. anyways, See, things, I'm going to stop. I'm gonna like stop that unstop. don't work
1: if you have to explain them to people. Afterwards. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you, that that said, we'll unpack this point. You you spoke a couple of minutes ago about yeah. this being more of a dedicated circuit than it is a street track. And it got me thinking when you look at the layout, I'm not sure how much of this track is used for anything else. You know, when you take down the grandstands and you take away the concrete barriers and whatever tech pro barriers they may have had, which certainly weren't enough based on the criticism and feedback from the drivers. To me, this is a purpose built track. And quite frankly, so is Jeddah. And I would love, I would love to hear from Ahmed and I would love to hear from Nabila, some of our really great listeners from Jeddah, because I'm not sure how much of that track is is actually used as a street course. Like if we go to Baku, we know that when they disassemble that track, almost the entire thing is public roads, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how much of Jeddah and, and Miami are necessarily a true street track, like Monaco. I think they are dedicated purpose-built tracks that are just happen to be in fairly dense, built-up residential or, or business districts. And they're constrained from a... Uh, I would say, a runoff perspective simply because they don't have the space to accommodate the runoffs that you would see at a dedicated circuit. But to me, Jeddah and and Miami are more a dedicated purpose-built circuit than they Mm -hmm. are a street track. They just... they're they're unique. So maybe calling them a hybrid is appropriate, but I think that what we're seeing is in Jeddah. And I think in Miami, these are very economically sustainable tracks. We obviously know that the race organizers, Saudi Aramco in particular are paying $50 million a year for that race to go ahead in Jeddah. And I think it's going to gain momentum in, in the coming years and be a very successful event. And I think based on what we've seen this year, that unless something catastrophic happens to the popularity of Formula One in the United States, I think there's certainly going to be room for for Miami to thrive on the calendar. In terms of environmentally, I think that's a, a much, much more complex question, but I don't think it's necessarily... I think the question is more, is it environmentally sustainable to have dedicated purpose-built tracks in the countryside occupying hundreds of acres right. rather than a kind of hybrid track that's been wedged into a built-up residential or or urban area. What
1: well, you, do you know, think? yeah, th- that's a great point. Because I mean, remember, what, was it last year? Or was it two years ago? I mean, there was talk about building a new track. Was it near Rio de Janeiro? And that the, the uh, right. they, they were, were going to cut down acres and acres of trees. Right. And th- there was like a lot of criticism about that. So... I mean, obviously, the existing circuits that have been built would be grandfathered in. But I mean, just, you know, as somebody that works in land development, I mean, there are all sorts of considerations that need to be taken into account. It doesn't matter if you're building a single family home. To townhouses, to condos, to towers, or big industrial sites—I mean, that that whole perspective has changed. I mean, people expect more. People and society expect uh, better, and it, it's not an easy question. I mean, people want to see sustainability. People want to see responsible stewardship, and people want to see things done uh, done properly. So, I mean, I—I mean, I don't want to say that we won't see any new tracks. I mean, we've got a couple that are in the the, the pipeline. Obviously, the one in Russia—that's probably not going to happen anytime in the <laughs> good, good, <laughs> for, for, good. Yeah, for for a long long time w- I
0: never want to see an f1 car yeah. in that
1: country again I'm sorry well then then we got the the other one that's coming online in Saudi Arabia in a couple of years and then in Qatar oh, as Qadilla. well Qadilla, yeah, Qadilla, yeah. Qadilla, exactly so well, well we'll see those I mean it's it's a little bit different I mean when you're in the desert you don't have to worry about like mass deforestation and things like that because there's right. a lot of trees and things like that in those those areas uh, to begin with but regardless what whatever the, the the environment is it's got its own unique uh, ecosystem, so there's unique considerations that have to be uh, taken into account wherever they build uh, a new one. But I kind of like the the hybrid uh, feel to it. You know, it was interesting. Tim and I were talking about it before we actually started uh, recording the show, and I said to him. The one vibe I got from Miami, and I don't know why, was it to me, it felt like Mexico City. I I just don't know why. Maybe because it had that sort of, you know, where you go through where the podium is in Mexico, when you kind of have like that left-right combo and then you come around under the start-finish, you know, just where the the old stadium is, like that kind of has a temporary feel. So I I don't know if that was the connection there, but... I don't know. I I think it was pretty cool. Like I say, I mean, being in that sort of uh, professional area, I was just impressed what the engineers and the designers were able to do. Even though the race itself didn't really quite deliver the excitement any of us wanted, but uh, yeah, it it certainly is an excuse me an interesting topic to ponder. A couple of weeks ago, one of our listeners on
0: Twitter reached out and actually asked a question about the potential for a new race in Western Canada, and I think it was Juan Solo, and his question was, you know. F one's growing in popularity, mm-hmm. and we're seeing all these new races being added in the U S. and Miami and Las Vegas. Is there the possibility of seeing a new track or a new new events in Western Canada? And my answer to that is it'll never, ever, ever happen. We I can't just, even get Formula E think, off
1: the ground here. So totally, yeah. I
0: just I don't think a country of forty million people like Canada has enough of an economic corporate base to mm-hmm. sustain a, a second event. But I think the second piece is. Where would you put the track? and how would you deal with the opposition? So if you look at Western Canada, if you were to build a track, to your point, you're either going to have to deforce an area to which you would get massive, massive uproar from from residents and and from people within the province and environmentalists, or you would have to spend public funds making it happen or you would have to move into agricultural mm-hmm. reserves. So I think I think if you look at Western Europe and I think if you look at parts of Canada, building a new purpose-built track would be fought fraught with fierce resistance, fierce resistance. I think to your point in the Middle East, especially where there's significant land and the environmental impact is less, I think there's probably going to be less opposition. But, you know, I I don't think Zanvor ever gets built in 2022. In fact, it's... It's fighting opposition today. I don't think SPA gets built today. I don't think Silverstone gets built today. And I think in a sense, to your earlier point, they're kind of grandfathered in because there's some historical legacy there. The tracks are built. They're paid off. They're privately owned, privately financed for the most part. But I just I don't see a lot of new purpose built tracks getting built in liberal democracies in 2022.
1: Well, I mean, let's take where we live for example. I mean, there's lots of uh, great places where you could build a build a circuit, say out in the Fraser Valley. But a lot of that land is the agricultural land reserve, and that's you're never going to get that land out. I mean, you have to have like a really exactly. even, even if you have a real valid reason, it's still difficult to get that land out of the the, the land reserve. But yeah it is uh it it's fascinating to see where it's going and what the the expects at. Uh, pardon me the expectations did you, did you of have society fun, are
0: because because ultimately f1 is entertainment it's supposed to be fun did you have fun watching that race weekend
1: i did yeah i mean there, there was a lot going on like i say i got to one point in the race that it needed uh it needed something to happen it needed that <laughs> safety car because some of the things that were happening were, were kind of Far and few between. And, you know, it, you could make the argument that it was, I don't want to say an artificial way to kind of you know, sort of group the pack together, but it certainly added a bit of excitement. It was interesting to see Carlos and, and Checo fighting it out. And then, uh, you know, Charles got interested for several laps there. And it, it, it added a bit of spiciness to the last, say, dozen laps or so of the race. So it was just unfortunate because Gasly was just kind of like wandering all over the place and then collected poor Lando. And uh, that that was that was it. But um, you know, fortunately, there was no damage really done, other than to to the cars themselves and to egos. But it uh, certainly uh, it 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 delivered something when it uh, the the race desperately needed it.
0: One of the criticisms that I've had for F one for many 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 years is I don't like that the sport feels the need to trot out celebrities in an effort to validate its its. Desire to be in the public eye and to be a part of the public conversation. Like I, I kind of got it. You know, at five, six, eight, ten years ago, especially Mm -hmm. at American events, that that you would try to build up the prominence of your own event, or I would say, um, add add legitimacy to your event by incorporating celebrities into the proceedings. I felt it was a little bit nauseating last year at Coda, and I'm a Megan the Stallion fan. I didn't need to see her on, on the grid <laughs> as part of that grid walk. Like, well,
1: you know, Martin you Brundle didn't want to, didn't want to see her fan, there either after what happened. Totally.
0: Again, if you're a fan of the sport and you want to be there and you can afford VIP yep. passes, fantastic but please don't trot folks out for the sake of trying to legitimize your sport we don't need it anymore formula one doesn't need it anymore and it was a little bit nauseating with just how much celebrity spotting there was during this event and Mm -hmm. even how much of the media was swooning at the presence of celebrities in the paddock i'm guys this is Formula One is itself the absolute pinnacle of global motorsports, and totally. the drivers themselves are global celebrities. We don't need to be fawning at the fact that there's some B-list movie star or oh, come A-list on American come on athlete in the paddock.
1: You, you you didn't you didn't feel a little bit of excitement when they wheeled out Jean-Claude Van Damme <laughs> during the course? Did of the they? No, I oh I, man, I, I didn't see that. No, I, I'm just making that up. Uh, I, I hope <laughs> that, that that actually didn't happen, but <laughs> that would be I feel funny. I feel like
0: we've beaten Miami to death.
1: I do too I do too well why don't we take a quick break and a little bit earlier than usual and then we'll come back and we'll start going through some of the news so don't go away after this little break we'll go further and that was about the most awkward dismount I ever did so we'll leave it there <laughs> Be back in a moment guys passion drive and patience the formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not,
0: summer is just around the corner.
1: All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Mark and Mark here again, as usual. You look good tonight, man. I was kind of worried about you there last week. I mean, you just uh, going into the show, you looked, you didn't look your your normal, upbeat self. I mean, you really struggled through last week. So I, I'm glad to see you all 100% again. Yeah, it was just, a, I, I could tell you soldiered through. It was, it, it was admirable. It was, it was You're good. You're putting my business in the streets, son. <laughs> hey, there was no hiding. Did you know how many sniffles I had to edit out of that show last week? but no, I can't. <gasps> uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, all the complaints about like the audio levels on YouTube is like, guys, this is the best that we got for YouTube. You know, it's just, uh, it is what it is. Definitely. Anyhow. Yeah.
0: And that's a good point, right? Because we want to encourage people to watch the YouTube stream, especially live, but anyone that goes back and revisits it later, you're getting a raw uncut interpretation you're getting sniffles and all because we're broadcasting that in real time the audio that we put into the podcast we can go back we never edit anything out like what you're hearing is the conversation uncut but we have the opportunity to go out and edit out blank space and mouse clicks and things like that just to make it a little bit more professional but I assure you and this is one of the things that I'm really proud about is the shows that we put out are uncut we don't go and edit segments we don't go and edit ums it is as it comes out of our mouth
1: exactly to what they call live to tape and uh, that's one of the fun things that, uh, that that I find about doing this show with you is because what you see is what you get I mean we put an outline together right and you do and you do a great job of it but then we go through we talk go through all these different talking points and you never really know what what, what you're going to get because nothing is scripted and it's just like sometimes oh I wonder how he's going to react to this and how you're going to react to that and I wonder where this discussion is going to lead us but it's a uh, it's always uh good fun but hey before we get into the news itself let's just uh, hit a couple of uh, other things let's Just go over the uh, driver's standing in the 2022 Formula One World Championship. Charles Leclerc still on top with 104 points, followed by Max Verstappen from Red Bull with 85. Sergio Perez with 66 points. George Russell quietly has slid into fourth uh, place in the Drivers' Championship with 59. Carlos Sainz, after his third place in Florida last week, now on 53 points, showing a little bit of interest in the championship again. Well, he was always interested. He just had a couple of really bad races where he maybe raced two laps in two races. Anyways, that's a different story. And then Lewis Hamilton rounding out the top six. Got to throw Lewis in there, you know. It just isn't the same if we didn't leave him out there, even though I said I was going to do the top five. Lewis currently on 36 points. Over on the Constructors' uh, Champions, uh, chip side, Ferrari 157 points, Red Bull 151. So that, for all intents and purposes, level and that's not, that's not a big lead in the championship, especially at this point in the season, by any means. Mercedes third with ninety five, McLaren fourth with forty six, and then Alpha Romeo rounding out the top five with forty sorry thirty one points. And then the fastest lap award. I thought this one was kind of interesting. So the first uh, three races through Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and Australia, fastest lap award went to Charles Leclerc of uh, Ferrari. And then last two races in Imola and Miami, fastest lap went to Max. For Stappen, okay, Mark. Let's go over to the. This is a topic I think that uh, that you can really identify with, and this is the wearing of bling and the jewelry. I don't want to call it scandal. Is it a debate? It's an. Uh, it's definitely an issue. Where, where, where do? You, what's the right way to describe this? This uh, situation is it? Conversation? A
0: conversation? A
1: crisis? What else could it be? Uh, <laughs> I An evolving it. debate. I love it. That is perfect. I wasn't going to go quite like like crisis is a little bit too too dramatic, but evolving con was it evolving conversation? Is that what you said? I yeah, forgot an no. evolving conversation. I, an evolving I like conversation. It. I like it. I like it.
0: I I kind of want to kick the conversation off actually with a tweet, and I shouldn't say actually. So my four-year-old, by the way, has discovered the word actually. So every third word is actually so actually Baba for dinner actually <laughs> I would like pizza actually like so
1: there is an actually kid out there like go and look it up on YouTube there was a kid one time he got I don't know it was it like a state fair somewhere yes, was in Pennsylvania yes, the I know actual, the one. yeah that was that was that was like about the cutest thing ever
0: That was adorable. Yeah. So here's a tweet from Will Buxton, and this is probably the best way to kick off this conversation. And I quote, in full knowledge, Hamilton's fans will disagree. This feels like a strange hill to plant your flag on. Lewis and Merck called on the FIA to apply the rules to the letter. The new racing director is doing that. You don't get to choose which rules you want to follow end quote. So what will is speaking to here is this evolving conversation amongst the teams, the drivers, the race directors, and the FIA about the fact that this long-standing rule in the ISC, the International Sporting Code, which prohibits certain types of jewelry from being worn, in race in practice in qualifying is now going to be enforced so a -hmm. couple of races ago we go into australia the fia through the race director comes forward and says hey we have this rule in the isc the international sporting code prohibiting the wearing of jewelry during a race we are now going to start enforcing this. We're going to enforce it because it's about safety. Now, again, it's been in the rule book since 2005. For all we know, it has never, ever, ever been enforced. Mm-hmm. For most of the drivers on the grid is not particularly problematic because for most of them, they don't wear any or a lot of jewelry. Now, the actual rule itself, if you look at the ISC section five, wearing of jewelry, the wearing of jewelry in the form of body piercing, or metal neck chains is prohibited during the competition and may therefore be checked before the start. Now, the interesting thing about this is rings are not included. And until a few days ago, neither were watches. So, body piercings, neck chains were banned. Rings and watches were not banned. In fact, when Roman Grosjean had his crash in Bahrain a couple of years ago, he was actually wearing his wedding ring. Hmm. So, it's being conjured up as a bit of a a bit of a controversy because there's a couple of drivers in particular that are pushing back against this ban. So initially Lewis Hamilton, obviously if you've seen him in the paddock, he does wear jewelry, he has earrings, he has a nose stud, and a couple of other drivers have come forward and are objecting to this. So it sounds as though Lewis actually was given a two-race exception. So initially when he was challenged and when the FIA challenged the drivers and the teams to adhere to this rule, he took his earrings out. He stated that, hey, I can't myself take my nose stud out. It's not something I can do, myself or do by myself. So they gave him a two-race exception to address this. It now sounds as though he's going to push back and he isn't going to adhere to this. Meanwhile, hmm. another young driver, uh, Mr. Gasly, wears a cross on a chain around his neck and he too is pushing back stating that it should be his right whether he wants to whether he wants to compromise his personal safety or not so we have this bubbling we have this bubbling controversy between the fia the drivers and the teams and formula one And of course all of this is spilled out into public and there's been accusations Sebastian Vettel being one of them, suggesting that this seems somewhat targeted, especially towards Lewis Hamilton. So on the one hand, it's, it's a weird thing for the FIA to drive that this is one of the things that they want to go after, that if yeah, this was yeah. important to them, why couldn't this be a conversation between them and the drivers and the teams in the offseason so this could be resolved behind closed doors? Why allow this to spill out into public in-season and become a distraction? But on the other hand... We've asked the FIA for years to apply the rules in the rule book, which they didn't do last year. And we know that it just derailed the entire championship in so many ways that now that they are trying to apply the rules, they're getting this fierce resistance from Mm -hmm. some of the drivers. And, And I get it if I'm a driver, if I'm Lewis, and I've been in the championship since 2007, and I've been wearing... Earrings since 2011, which is fact I've been wearing a nose stud since 2017 and that's a fact, and this has never been applied before why now, especially when it doesn't have any kind of impact into the competitive spirit of the sport. So it seems like it's ill played by the FIA, even though I agree they should be applying their rules. I think it could have been done more professionally and it should have been addressed during the off season. But I think on the other hand too, if the drivers are asking the FIA to apply the rules and the rule books are clearly defined There should be some adherence to those rule books. I don't know what you think.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, right? Because uh, like I say, or like you said, pardon me, that it it seems rather targeted in the picture that I'm looking at Lewis Hamilton. He has two watches on one arm. He's got at least one on the other arm. He's got rings on every finger that I can see because he's holding the microphone. He's kind of held in both hands. So I mean... Lewis likes his bling, right? And it's kind of funny, but my my first uh you know reaction is that you know if this is going to be something that they want to enforce, it's just like okay, if it's a rule, then you have to enforce it for everybody, right? So I can right. understand that. Okay, if Lewis is pushing back, they give him like a, a like a couple of races. Why don't they just say for everyone that come July first or something? That's the the uh, the. The, the deadline, if you want to call it that, that starting from that date, no jewelry except for whatever the exceptions are, for rings or whatever it is, or watches, as long as it doesn't compromise safety. But then you know, Gasly's kind of like throwing in an interesting kind of twist to it, saying, well, you know, if I know that this is, uh, you know, I want to wear this and I know that uh, it could compromise my personal safety, but I'm okay with that, then should I be okay to to, to go and race? So, I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of lawyers somewhere, you know, somewhere listening to all this kind of like rubbing their hands and thinking, well, you know, if this happens and that, you know, kind of doing the whole Rubik's Cube of uh, possibilities. And I I really don't know. And I I mean, my reaction is to... First of all, I see like I think the discussion around Lewis is a little bit different, just considering his old his whole image and everything that he does. But just in general, let's just say that they have this jewelry band for everyone. Then I think that you have to make it uh, you know applicable to all the drivers. I don't think that you can have like an exception for like uh Pierre Gasly saying, well, you know, I, I, you know, give me some waiver to sign. I still want to wear my 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 chain because I just want to wear it for reasons. But, you know, there, there's, there, there's got to be... I mean, they're, they're obviously concerned about something that, you know, from, from a safety point of view, that should something ever happen, that, uh, you know, his safety isn't compromised when they're trying to do, extract him from a car, get his helmet off, or whatever it might be. So I can see that. So just in general, I think that if it's it's there, it's for, for, for everyone. But, you know, this whole thing about Lewis is a little bit uh, different, you know, like you say, because, you know, it seems, as Seb said, uh, targeted, so... I don't know. It's, it's just, it, it's strange. It's, it's, very, I think appropriate the way that you put it that it, it seems like a conversation that was better dealt with offline done in the off season. And, uh, you know, let's have these consultations to see, you know, at least uh, test the temperature and find out, you know, what, where the drivers are rather than, because this, this has been going on, for, excuse me now for what, about six weeks, maybe a little bit longer. Right. And in, if yes, anything, the
0: beginning of April.
1: Yeah, so I mean, like you say, this is evolving with the, you know, seemingly no end in sight. In the beginning, it was just Lewis, but now you got like Pierre kind of chiming into it as well. And and who knows what what else? I mean, this is something that, that they should have floated beforehand to see okay this was going to work or it wasn't and then you know if it wasn't going to work is like is this something we really want to dig our heels in about or is this something that's maybe a little bit better that we just kind of let it slide by the wayside i mean they're obviously concerned about uh, for for a reason from a safety point of view it just the whole way it's kind of you know popped up into the public sphere seems a bit uh, unnecessary to me
0: the definition of jewelry, I, I also find interesting. And I'll read this again the wearing of jewelry in the form of body piercing or metal neck chains is prohibited. Now, within the last couple of weeks, race directors have added, as an addition to that, jewelry and underwear, and they further define jewelry as watches. So, mm-hmm. up until the last couple of weeks, drivers were also able to wear metal watches in the cockpit of a car during a race, which to me is absolutely absurd. And I don't know how often they did I think Roman Grosjean commented recently that he himself may have been wearing a watch during that Bahrain crash last year, which mm-hmm. I think is is crazy. But again, if there's a lack of practicality about this rule, then maybe they simply need to revisit the rule. And let's let's remind everyone that the FIA doesn't own Formula One. It is a contractor of Formula One whose principal role is to manage safety. And mm-hmm. clearly for the better part of the last 17 years, while this rule existed, they didn't believe it was serious enough that it needed to be enforced. So, so hopefully there could be a constructive dot exactly. Exactly. And clearly, you know, we, we have a new president of the FIA and Mohammed Ben saleem And I think he came in and he probably paid particularly close attention to what had happened at the end of the championship last year. And he probably watched the way that Jean Todd was running the show. And I think he's coming in and he wants to be a much more proactive, effective uh, custodian of the safety side of the sport. And he's probably looking at the rule book. And I think as it's been stated before, he's going through the rule book and he's asking his race directors, are these rules being enforced? Yes, no. And if the answer is no, he's asking them to enforce them. And I think what had happened is as the season began, he was going through the rule book and he comes across this one. Hey, is this rule being enforced? And they probably came back and said, no, openly, this rule has never been enforced. And he's like, well, if it's in the rule book, if it's in the international sporting code. We need to enforce this rule. Rule. But to your point, maybe this is one of those things that should have happened in the off season, so they could have had a constructive dialogue with the drivers so this type of thing doesn't spill out into the public during the season.
1: Yeah, it just seems uh, better served that uh, if they're going through it, uh, just uh, the, the bullet points are going through each one of the sections of the ISC and just wondering, okay, well, is this being enforced? Is this isn't? You think it would have been a little bit... Um what do you want to call it, a a little bit less clumsy, if they maybe engage the services of some consultant to maybe go through each one of the the, the points in the ISC and decide, okay, well, this is relevant, this isn't, maybe we should consider a rewrite of the ISC and then... And, and, and take it from there or you know rather than this kind of like enforce it all or don't enforce anything so it's just uh, you know in kind of a slow news week I mean we like last week we had like the big news at VW
0: people are going to tune out oh, not no, supposed won't. to say that I'm te- podcasting 101
1: <laughs> well then I was going to tease that we got something really good coming up but now I killed it so we might as well just sign off and go home <laughs> early tonight but yeah you know it's uh, just uh, it is one of those things I lost my train of thought so why don't we just go on to the, <laughs> the next Boy. perfect timing yeah so the next one is uh, interesting because it's been a while since we've actually had a, a chance to really uh, talk about this and so michael andretti is um he's encouraged by receiving some direction in miami and th- this is something that we, we talked about it at length last summer obviously there was that um, that that whole story about andretti motorsport trying to buy, buy sauber alfa romeo and uh, ultimately, of course, that didn't go anywhere. And then it kind of popped up several months later that they are prepared to make the, the, the big jump and, and you know, finance the, the, the Formula One team themselves and start one up from, from scratch. And then it's, it's kind of quietened down in the last, what would you say, two, two and a half months, something like that. So this is kind of interesting that it should uh, pop up again. So obviously, uh, Michael Andretti was going to be at the, uh, at the race this past uh, weekend. And, um, so yeah, do w- w- you want to take this a little bit further, Mark, and tell us what exactly yeah. happened with Michael in Miami?
0: So Michael Andretti, part of the Andretti family, he of course himself raced in, in Indy. He raced for a short period of time in Formula One in the early 90s. His dad, of course, won the 1970. Yeah, his dad, of course, won the 1978 Formula One World Championship. So there's no question that racing and motorsports is in his DNA and is in his family's DNA. Last year, he led a group that made a effort to purchase Sauber. And either the purchase price that they were hoping to pay wasn't sufficient or the percentage of I would say control that they were going to have over the team wasn't wasn't what they would consider acceptable given how much financial outlay they were hoping to make. It it happened. So all of that said, it didn't happen. The Sauber purchase fell apart. So now they've been working to explore other opportunities to get into the sport. So a couple of months ago in February, they They sent papers to the FIA indicating that they are hoping and they fully intend to put a Formula One team on the grid, that they'd had negotiations with Renault, that their car would be Renault power unit equipped. So of course, Hmm. they would be working closely with Lauren Rossi and the Alpine team. So they felt they were in a good position to bring a team to the grid. The other thing they were willing to do was pay a $200 million dilution fee. So when the most recent Concord agreement was struck, which was back in 2020, which remarkably was almost two years ago, there was a clause put in the Concord Agreement indicating that if an 11th or 12th team was to join the grid, they would have to pay a $200 million dilution fee, which would be split amongst the 10 existing teams. And the reason for that being that if you add another team to the grid, you devalue the amount of money that the teams, the existing teams extract from the prize fund. So, hey, we have to split our money 11 ways as opposed to 10 or 12 ways as opposed to 10 or 11. So this team would have to pay $200 million. In the context of 2020, in the context of the pandemic, that didn't seem like an insignificant amount of money. And Michael Andrade is coming forward saying, hey, we've got a plan to build a factory. We are going to be an American-based team. We're going to run reno power units, and we're willing to pay the $200 million dollars. The FIA has basically iced him out and has stated, we've got more important things to deal with right now. And with the exception of McLaren and Alpine, surprise, surprise, The eight other teams on the grid have no desire and have no energy to entertain a new team at this point. And their explanation being fundamentally that that $200 million split 10 ways is $20 million, which means nothing to us when we're getting $150 million from a crypto sponsor or when we're getting $100 million sponsor from an American tech company like Mm -hmm. Salesforce. $20 $20 million is a one-time fee from a new entry means nothing to us. And what Toto and what Christian have been arguing is that if we're going to add another team to the grid, it can't be a team that's simply going to come and, like a mosquito, suck financial resources out of the sport without giving anything back. That if we're going to allow an 11th team onto the grid, they need to expand The financial value of the sport, they need to add more value. So, Hey, it's not us giving up a portion of the proceeds from the prize fund, but it's us earning more because you're bringing so much value to the sport. And Total Wolf and Christian Horner simply aren't convinced that Andretti's team would be capable of doing that. And their perspective is one, that it would simply suck money away from us that we deserve because we've invested hundreds or billions of dollars into our infrastructure in our factories to be a competitive Formula One team. And we're not willing to give up our prize money to an unknown team that's joining the grid for that paltry $200 million. The other piece of this The other piece of this is that Liberty, who's obviously the owner, sees professional sports and they see Formula One through the lens of the NFL, Major League Baseball, and the NBA. And they believe that Formula One teams themselves should be worth a ton of money. And we've heard Lauren Stroll talk about the fact that his expectation is that a Formula One team should be worth a billion dollars. And I know that seems absurd and people get really uppity when I say that. But an NHL expansion team is worth $700 million and there's 30 two of those and the global appeal of the nhl is very small relative to formula one so it's not unreasonable to say that a formula one team should be worth a billion dollars so if you suddenly allow a team under the grid for 200 million dollars that significantly devalues all of the other teams on the grid which works exactly against what the teams hope to achieve and what liberty hopes to achieve And then the final thing I'll add as well, and somebody just said this to me as we're talking, this is a really great quote from Christian Horner, and it's kind of going back to that point I made a couple of minutes ago about teams losing money and losing prize money when they add an 11th team. He says, and I quote, money is ultimately going to be a significant factor. I see it as a question really for the promoter, being Liberty, Mm -hmm. that if they want more teams, they're obviously going to have to dilute their share of the fund. Because it would be unfair to expect the other teams to pay for the additional UNU entrance to come in indirectly. That's always going to be the conflict that you have. So Christian Horner, Red Bull racing CEO is stating, Hey, Mr. Liberty, if you do want to add additional teams. You should be paying them out of your share of the benefits. So again, very high level, the Concord Agreement, it basically takes all of the operating income of the sport and it splits a portion of that towards Liberty and the shareholders. And it splits a portion of that to the teams. What Christian's saying is, hey, add more teams, but Liberty, you give up from your share, not our Share So I'm probably upsetting a lot of American fans that are really eager to see a competent American entry on the grid. I'm just not convinced this is the right way to do it because I don't think it addresses the Objectives that Formula One and the teams have for enhancing the value of the individual franchises that are already on the grid.
1: Yeah, it's interesting as well uh, that Michael during the weekend uh, he had a letter that he had uh, with him that uh, he took around to the, uh, the 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 ten Formula One teams. Basically, it was uh, he was asking them to sign a letter of support for Andretti uh, Motorsport uh, to come into Formula One. So. The only two people that signed it was uh, Alpine CEO Laurent Rossi and Zach Brown, the CEO of uh, McLaren. And uh, Zach, uh, he's he's had a long-standing relationship with the Andretti's, and he obviously knows them very well. And Zach had to say, "quote," uh, and he's uh, speci- uh, talking specifically about Andretti gl- uh, Global. And Zach had to say, quote, a very credible racing team with a credible brand with the right resources. I think it is additive to the sport. That appears to be what Michael has put together. So on that basis, we are supportive, end quote. So there you go. Anyways, uh, time for another uh, quick break. And when we come back on the other side, there is a bit of a follow-up story to this. And uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. As always, up to speed with Formula 1. Mark and Mark here. We were just talking before the break about Andretti Motorsports still trying to get into Formula 1 and their latest attempts to drum up some support in the paddock at the Miami Grand Prix last weekend. So one of the things that uh, is a bit of a spillover from that story is that Mario Andretti is going to get to drive a McLaren F1 car at the uh, 2022 United States Grand Prix at Coda in the fall. So that's uh, kind of cool. Who would have thought that we'd see how old is Mario now? He's, I think, he's in his early eighties now. too. yeah, isn't that 82. awesome? So he's going to be able to to get behind uh, the, the the wheel of a Formula One car at uh, at Coda here. There's a really cool picture on Twitter of Zach Brown. I'm just looking at it right now, standing with Emerson Fittipaldi and Mario Andretti on the grid at uh, at Miami last uh, last weekend. And he struck a deal with Mario to uh, you know to help him out with something uh, that's on his bucket list, and that's to drive a McLaren Formula One uh, car at uh at that uh, quota this uh, this year that's going to be a uh, pretty cool i wonder if mario still got it i mean uh, he raced for a long long time i mean it, it was pretty cool to see him and michael racing in indy back i know mean, i don't know this is in the 90s so i mean that's quite a while ago but i mean he was still racing at a very very competitive uh, level yeah. back then i mean just uh, really really cool to see so did did you want to take this one? I, I don't know this next story. Why you needed to drop this one? It's it's a little bit <laughs> it, it's a little bit cheeky. Let's let, let's put it that way. Did you, <laughs> I'd, I'd be I a was... little bit silly about this one? But I think this this one uh, you know for for those of you that uh, you know. Uh, well we're not going to share it on the live stream anyways we don't have it uh, teed up to share the screen or anything but it's just one of those things that you can't unsee and that's one of Valtteri Bottas's latest um Instagram posts with uh, the Finn song clothing (laughs) take it away you're you're I love this
0: post so I was inspired to talk about this not only because I had so many people hitting me up on uh Hitting me up on social media about it this morning, but also because one of our great listeners, Connie messaged me and she's actually traveling across Europe right now with oh, wow. some family, cool. having a lot of fun, but she was dying to know what the daily, the daily, um, I would say the daily consumption of this was going to be like, what your reaction was going to be. And if you haven't seen it, uh, Mr. Valtteri Bosses, who seems to be in a much looser friendlier jovial state since his departure from mercedes when he was with mercedes he seemed to be very laser focused and dialed in and working on his craft and ever since he's been with alfa romeo he seems to be as equally a competent a race car driver but he seems to be having a little bit more fun with social media and within the last couple of days he posted a I was going to say a lovely photo, but he posted a lovely photo on his Instagram account from Aspen, Colorado. So he and his lovely significant other are visiting some parts of the United States while they're over here. He posted this beautiful landscape shot of some mountains and some trees and a flowing river. Now, what makes this photo particularly unique is that he's in the river and he's lying face down in the water without his clothes on. So you see (laughs) the back of his head, his shoulders, his back in his bottom. So he posted this, and of course, it became a social media sensation right away. There are art studios that have been commissioned to produce this work (laughs) on on an oil (laughs) canvas. And of course, everyone in Formula One had to weigh in right away so you had all of the drivers weighing in you had all the different media weighing in but I thought it was adorable I thought it was cute I love the fact that he just seems to be in a really great place mentally and emotionally Um, I also love as well all of the great posts that he has of he and his significant other traveling and working out together the tremendous amount of support he shows his significant other in her own endeavors but I thought this was hilarious and it was a great way to uh, wake up and, and start the day I'm not sure that necessarily everyone else would enjoy. Would, would agree but I thought it was uh, I thought it was awesome
1: I wonder if it's going to become like a little bit of a, a meme like the Fernando Alonso in the camp chair remember that a couple of years ago definitely so you, definitely you know, that, and that it just one pops sort of, up everywhere it, yeah it pops up everywhere Is he, he, even now Fernando sitting there in the, the the folding camp chair on the side of the track kind of chilling out when, when did that happen It yeah. was at 2016 2017 uh, 2015 was 16, it even going that yeah. back yeah
0: yeah. it was it was, it was in the McLaren Honda days because yeah. inevitably it was a byproduct <laughs> <laughs> of an engine failure somewhere.
1: Yeah, sadly it was, but that that was kind of a, a, a funny, funny uh, moment. Uh, not the nonetheless. So next one, you know, we, we're often quite hard on Hass, but apparently now they have a merch store which kind of surprising, like, did they, I, I've never actually looked before, have they just never in the history of Haas F1 had a merch store and all of a sudden they decided in 2022, hey, this is something we need to do? Or is it just the 2022 version after not really having anything to market in 2021? You know, what, what's the story with this one? Yeah,
0: this is a team that has obviously suffered in a lot of ways on, on the track, in in the boardroom, from a PR perspective, from an HR perspective. But it looks like they're starting to right the ship a, a little bit. And obviously that began a couple of months ago when they excised a certain driver and a core sponsor, and they brought Kevin Magnuson back. Then all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, people actually want to buy Haas merchandise. So they are reciprocating. They are responding to the demands of Formula One fans everywhere, and they have stood up their official online store. And Haas F1 merchandise is now available. Wasn't ready in time for Miami, although I saw a couple of cheap Haas hats for sale in some of the booths at that event on social media. But they do have a Haas store open with some limited merch, not limited quantity, but a limited amount of merch. But they've they've joined the party. And Quite frankly the last couple of years it wouldn't have mattered if they had a store up or not because I'm not convinced anyone would have bought it but all of a sudden they seem to have rejuvenated their brand and the perception of their team within the F1 rank. so yeah, it's yeah. good it's good I'm not I'm not necessarily going to buy it but if you're looking for some fairly affordable F1 merch uh, it's not not a bad place to start I'm looking right now uh, about forty to fifty bucks for a T-shirt. Shipping is very expensive, which makes me think that they're shipping this out of the U.S. But if you would like some uh, some Haas merch, it's now available.
1: There you go. You know, uh, Kevin Magnuson's a bit of an anti-hero, so maybe he's uh, gathering a bit of a cult following that uh, needs some Kevin Magnuson T-shirts or, or whatever uh, comes uh, with it. Okay. Uh, oh, I know what uh, I wanted to do. So um, this is a uh, one that uh, I guess is a. Uh, a story that's maybe going to unfold a little bit but uh norris mcdonald is reporting that nicholas latifi has been fired by uh, williams i mean obviously nick he's had a terrible start to, to the season so it was a two part or two tweets anyways first one says uh, toronto's nick latifi fired by williams f1 two things williams better have a lot of money because there will be one hell of a lawsuit and his replacement nick DeFries, had better do better in a, that pig of a car which is doubtful and then the second tweet is uh, basically, folks, nothing to see here because it says, correction, Nick Latifi will continue as a Williams driver for the foreseeable future. Information I received earlier today was incorrect. It doesn't matter how old uh, you are, how often one learns this important lesson. Get it first, but get first, get it right. My apologies to Nick Latifi. So that's uh, pretty interesting that, uh, first of all, that, uh, that Norris broke that story and then walked it back uh, pretty quickly uh, afterwards.
0: Yeah. I woke up to this story this morning and multiple people were DMing this one to me and Norris McDonald, for those of you that don't know, which is probably everyone, which is fine, is a fairly well-respected Canadian automotive journalist. So when I saw this this morning, I was surprised one, because he doesn't particularly, he doesn't report on F1 a lot and -hmm. he doesn't tweet a lot. So when I saw the story this morning, I saw the blue check and I realized who it was from. I kind of had that kind of, Uncomfortable feeling that this might be legit. I just wasn't sure why nobody else was reporting it. And I wasn't clear how he got the story. I'm still very, very, very curious. What made him confident enough to be the person that broke this story? Because when he posted that tweet, which was, I believe at 542 AM Pacific standard time on May 12th, when he posted that tweet, he was obviously confident enough to know that he was going to be the one that broke that story. So I am dying to know, and we probably will never know, but I'm dying to know why he thought he was ready and in a position to break the news that Nicholas Latifi had been fired by by Williams not relieved of his duties but straight up fired by Williams the other Hmm. thing that's interesting about that post too is it's it's aggressive in the sense that he seems to uh, have this mindset that Williams was going to immediately encounter a lawsuit that obviously Safina, which is one of their principal sponsors, who of course is the company that's owned by Nicholas Latifi's dad, that they would be pursuing damages against the Williams team. Hmm. And ultimately when, and if this happens, it's not going to be a surprise. And I think there'll be many conversations to make the, make the transition as smooth as, as possible and to, kind of negate as much negative PR as possible. Um, Ultimately, I hope it doesn't happen. Again, I want Nicholas to be successful. He's a likable guy and he's a Canadian kid and he works hard. I want him to be successful. But what was ultimately super embarrassing for Norris is just like you said, within a couple of hours. So that first tweet was at 5.42 a.m. He followed it up at 8.35 a.m. after causing a hellstorm online because of course this spread like wildfire that who's this guy breaking the story about a driver being fired when nobody else is reporting this. And for him to come back and say, correction, Nicholas Latifi will continue as a Williams driver for the foreseeable future tells me that maybe he had a source on the inside that was just completely wrong or he had information that he had no right to be reporting fascinating fascinating but it's interesting how how much damage one tweet can have in the course of a morning in a couple of hours
1: yeah exactly sometimes you know these uh, tweets don't uh, land at all and sometimes they just uh, completely take off and they go um, <laughs> they just get a life of their own but Interesting that uh, that this would uh, come up and become a discussion so so quickly. I mean, obviously, Latifi's had his um, struggles so far this, uh, this season. I mean, it hasn't looked uh, good for him at all. I mean, a couple of uh, things have been his fault. Maybe a couple you could argue was just a, a little bit of bad luck. But I don't ever recall a situation of a Formula One team pulling the plug this quickly in the season. Well, maybe Danny Kvyat. How, back in 2016, that, that didn't... How many races was that? Because that was at at Russia that year. And then so th- that would have been about this time this year or, or uh, of the year because uh, Russia used to be in the first uh, half dozen races or so because they replaced Kvyat with Max after uh, Russia. And then Max wins the, um, the the Spanish Grand Prix. Spanish Grand Prix is usually about the middle or third week in uh, in June. So I guess maybe now that I think about it, uh, that it is, wouldn't be uh, unusual, but it'd be unusual for Williams. I mean, Red Bull, they changed drivers at a drop of a hat. So there's that as well. That year, you're right, 2016. So Max started,
0: of course, he was on the B team for Red Bull with a 10th, a 6th, and an 8th place finish. So three points finishes. There's, of course, that retirement in Russia before he won that race in Spain where there was that where uh, Hamilton, depending <laughs> on who you spoke to, either Hamilton collected Rosberg or Rosberg collected Ham. Well, ultimately, it was uh, clearly Lewis that collected Rosberg, but the argument was, was he forced off the track? And through three races that year, Daniel Kiviat, who had actually started for Red Bull, you know, you look at it, his start wasn't that terrible. He had a DNS in the first race, he finished seventh in Bahrain, and he had a podium finish in his final race for Red Bull in mm-hmm. China. Really? But that's clearly Yeah. Clearly I don't think you can necessarily if hindsight is 2020 I don't think we can look back and argue that that was a bad move by Red Bull.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody's second guessing the uh, the the decision to swap out Max Verstappen and uh, Danny Kvyat. I think I think right. the I, I think history has ruled on that one and that that the, there there's no shred of a doubt. I, I think Danny Kvyat would probably even admit that they made the right call but maybe not at the right time. Hey before Mark we get into the um the questions there was kind of a cool graphic that you uh, threw through into the uh, into the show notes and um, th- this is kind of your thing because this is a technical it was just a list of all 20 drivers and what they've used in terms of uh, components in the engines and gearboxes um, gear etc and who's getting close to maybe uh, you know can you know running the risk of a penalty if they have to swap out uh, some uh, components and the one thing that stands out at me immediately is that boy the uh, AlphaTauri guys have really been going through the components in those Honda engines and Fernando Alonso has been pretty much switching out everything over the first uh, several races of the year.
0: It's particularly alarming and first of all I credit Reddit because I found this great graphics there and I and you know I'll, I'll screenshot it and I'll share it on our Twitter feed as well because I think some people will find it really interesting but it's entitled Power Unit in Gearbox Used Components after 5 rounds of the 2022 season and what it does is like you describe it shows all 20 drivers and then in the chart it breaks out the number of internal combustion engines the number of turbochargers the number of MGUHs the number of MGUKs etc 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 how many comp- components they've used, because this is relevant because even in the world of a cost cap, Teams are still limited by the number of different components they can use over the course of the season before they start incurring penalties. So, back in the V8 days, for instance, teams were allowed to use eight power units over the course of the season before they would start incurring penalties. In the new turbo hybrid world, originally it was four. And then, in the spirit of cutting down on cost, it was three. So, if you look at this chart, number of internal combustion engines used. Well, for about half the grid, it's one. But half the grid now is already on their second internal combustion engine. Again, that's a three. And if you look at Pierre, Yuki, and Fernando, they're already on their third internal combustion engine. Now, it doesn't mean that these teams can't go back and refurbish the existing ones, but it's unlikely that they would, which means that when they get to their fourth or their fifth, they start incurring penalties. And the penalties are grid penalties. So if you look at this list, and I think it's fair to share... Each team gets three internal combustion engines each year. They get three turbochargers. Three MGU-Hs, which is one of one half of the hybrid system. They get three MGU-Ks. They get two energy stores. So the energy stores are effectively mm-hmm. the battery. They get two control electronics, and they get eight sets of engine exhaust systems. So when you hear them talking about, and when I'm talking, of course, the media, Sky Sports, the F1 TV Pro app, etc. When you hear them talking about, hey, this driver is going to take a new power unit. This new driver is going to take a new turbocharger. Just be aware that as the season progresses progresses, that becomes more and more consequential, especially for drivers that are fighting for the championship, because you might get to the point two thirds or three quarters of the way through the season where, Hey, I'm going to take a new power unit knowing that I'm going to take a grid penalty, but that's a specific tactical advantage for me because this is the track where I typically perform well versus taking that penalty at the next race. So while they're only supposed to use three engines, inevitably every driver goes through four five, six, seven through the Course of the championship, they just start managing when they take those penalties very tactically. So it has less impact on their championship. But yeah, I thought to your point, it was remarkable that we have so many drivers that are already three deep on some of these components. And if you look at Fernando, he's already on his third internal combustion engine, his third turbocharger, <laughs> his third MGUH, his third MGUK it's it's pretty it's pretty spectacular that he's worked through so much expensive hardware so far
1: yeah but the other thing that i thought interesting too is you look at the uh, mercedes drivers they're still on the original components of everything except for george has had some of the uh, the gearbox uh, components uh, switched out so he's on the second set of uh, some of those parts max is still on the uh, all the original parts are the same set in his uh, in his power unit uh, same thing. Uh, he's well. He's on a second uh, exhaust uh, system, so there, there, there's that, and then uh, second sets of various uh, transmission and gearbox uh, parts. But then uh, both the Ferrari drivers have basically switched out their internal uh, combustion engines, their turbochargers. Both their MGUH and MGUK. So that's that's kind of interesting that they've been through. Uh, you know a couple of uh, components here and there. I mean, uh, Carlos obviously has had his uh, misadventures off the track. I don't know if that has anything to do with uh, his gearboxes and stuff. But uh, both the Ferrari drivers are also on their third set of engine exhaust systems, so there's uh, been a lot of work uh, going on there as well. So Mark, uh, let's close out the show now. We've already um, read through one email, and the first one was from McKay Mortensen. So which one do you want to pick uh, next? We got a couple of left.
0: I think we'll start with this one. So this question is from Merdad Sarahi. And he asked, you guys talked so much last year about 2022 resetting the table in the championship. Five races in, is it everything that you expected it to be? You want me to take
1: this one first? You're looking at me, so yeah, sure, I'll go you, first. all you, all you. <laughs> Yeah, you know it, it is interesting. I mean, after five races, I mean, it, it's obvious you can say now that uh, the the uh, the championship is settled down to where it is. So uh, it, it's interesting to see that Red Bull kind of struggled a little bit through the first couple of races of the season. I mean I'm I'm still not 100% confident that they have the re, uh, reliability that they need. Ferrari was a, a surprise that they came back as strong as they did. I don't think anybody expected them to be as good as they were in the first couple of races. Um, sorry McLaren but uh, Mercedes is uh, disappointing uh, the way that they were. I mean, I thought of everyone that they were just going to nail it uh, with with the new regs, but uh, obviously they're having issues with the, uh, excuse me, with the uh, the W13, but it's... It is what I expected, but not really, because you still have Ferrari, Mercedes, and Red Bull at the top. It's just that the order is kind of flipped around from what we've seen over the past several years. It used to be Mercedes at the top, Red Bull in the middle, <laughs> and uh, and Ferrari at the bottom of those top three teams. Now it's kind of flipped around a little bit. But the the, the, the big question is, and I mean, we, we've tossed this around a number of times over the last uh, several weeks, and uh, it's just like, is, is, is Mercedes going to be able to turn it around uh, this year? and every race that, uh, that, that passes, I think that becomes, uh, you know, that answer becomes more, more of a no than it is a, a, a maybe. I mean, there, there's still a long way to go. I mean, we're only six races into a supposedly a 23 race uh, season, but the, 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 the middle of the pack, I think it's a, a little bit interesting as well, where you look at some, you know, some of the other teams. I mean, um, Alfa Romeo certainly has surprised me. I mean, uh, Guan Yu is a little bit of uh, an unknown quantity because, I mean, he's still finding his feet in Formula One. I think that uh, despite the little slip up at the end of the uh, the Grand Prix last week in Miami, I think that Bottas has done an excellent job so far for uh, Alfa Romeo this uh, this season. Uh, Alpha Tauri's been a little bit hit or miss. Renault, I keep calling the Renault, but uh, Alpine, they've been a... Uh, they're kind of showing something but I think that's going to really take a little bit of time before I think that uh, that Otmar Safnauer really gets a hold of this team and really starts to put his imprint on that team before we see that really reflect more uh, I think results and points for that team and they've shown flashes of, of something. Haas is interesting because they had a couple of really good races to start the year and now they've kind of um, dropped back a little bit the, through the order of through the last uh, couple of races. I know that uh, Magnussen wasn't feeling 100% in Australia a couple of weeks ago. And then Miami. Well, Miami was going to be a big unknown for everyone. Nobody really knew what to expect going in there because a lot of guys were just saying that the simulator is one thing, but to actually get out here, that's, uh, that's another thing. Plus you had the, the the whole track literally falling apart uh, on them as they were there. And then Williams is a little bit uh, disappointing. And Aston Martin, gosh, I still don't know what to make of them. I mean, they're, they're a little bit better than they were last year at this time, but I mean, they're not really you know, exciting me too much. And then McLaren, I mean, they kind of blow a little bit hot and cold. I mean, they, they didn't start the season too good and they kind of had some uh, good races in between and then a little bit uh, disappointing in Miami uh, last weekend. I mean, if it were them at all, I mean, it was uh, not really the best weekend for them. What, what about yourself, Mark? Uh, what do you make of the season so far? I keep thinking back to a comment that
0: one of our listeners made in one of our spaces chat, Marshall, when he said, hey, what you need to look at is... Field spread, how how closely bunched up are these cars when you mm. get to the post-race race classification? I, I'm looking at the That's championship point. right now. Through five races, we've had two different winners and we've had seven different drivers on the podium. So through five races, one third of the grid has stepped on the podium. Uh, I don't know if that's. I mean, ultimately, I'm incredibly disappointed with Williams. I, I felt sure. that with a couple of years under the Dolton umbrella and all the investment that they made in the team, and the fact that they could sweep away all the misfortune that was associated with their previous car and the disaster that was Patty Lowe's brief time with that team, <laughs> I felt that the fresh start in 2022 with a new car was going to be productive. And, you know, Alex Albon's been heroic pulling that car, dragging that car into two straight or not two straight, but points finishes and two of the last three grand prix. I, I just think that team otherwise has been a horrific disaster. They should have been much more competitive. I, I think that that Aston Martin is, is a horror show. I, I think that's disappointing. Both of these teams were bad last year. And to your point, Haas showed some flashes early on seasons, but they're not necessarily ultra competitive and they're not competing for podiums. But again, the season's still young. And I think we've seen some of these teams demonstrate that they can evolve their cars in a meaningful way. I mean, you and I were awestruck at how terrible McLaren was in back rain. And by the time we get to Imola, they're scoring a podium. So there's still time for these teams. But while there's a lot of time My opinion's evolving. I was really excited (laughs) after Bahrain. I was incredibly excited after Saudi. The last three races, eh, I'm not so sure. That said, again, it's all new for the teams. They're still dealing with new wheels. They're still dealing with new cars. They're still dealing with new aero. There's a lot to work out. We knew these teams weren't going to nail it from day one. If we were confident that they were, we would already have eliminated DRS. Again, for me, it's not... Five races in, it's not the slam dunk success that I felt it was after two races.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, uh, I, I think by and large that there's uh, something very good with the, uh, the 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 new format with the new regulations here. But I think there certainly needs to be some tweaks made to the to the package wherever they need to, to do it. I mean, the one I think big indication that they'll know that this uh, this new formula has uh, succeeded is that uh, they'll just say that okay, from you know twenty twenty three that uh, DRS is no longer needed if uh, they, they they can right. get these cars following close together they can pass you know they're, they're, there's there's no issues there then I'll be convinced that this uh the, this new era of formula 1 is a success I wouldn't say that the um that the judge is out and I'm not suggesting by any means that it's um, it, it's a failure it's been anything but that I think I think that it's very much a developing situation, and I'm sure they're aware of this uh, themselves. I mean, I think that they bit off a lot in um, trying to do what they uh, decided to do with the change in the in the format, and there was so many unforeseen things when these cars finally took to the track. I don't think that anybody expected to see the the porpoising <laughs> and right. the, the way that 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 still is an issue half a dozen races almost into the season, as it is, and just how that is still a, a, an issue and how they're going to uh, fix that. So. So that's uh, definitely one to, to watch. But yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, I'm enjoying the season so far. I think there's a lot of different uh, interesting things going on with the w- w- with the championship. I just hope that whatever happens that all of a sudden one of these teams just doesn't really go off to the races and then just completely dominates the, uh, the, the, the world championship. I mean, you know, heaven forbid it comes down to like we saw at Abu Dhabi last year. I mean, that was... One for the ages, obviously, for the, with with all the all the fallout f- from that. I mean, that was the wrong way to uh, end a championship in a season. But I mean, if they can keep it close, and uh, it's Charles and Max, and uh, you know, if somebody else is able to throw their hat in the ring there for that uh, championship uh, conversation, for whoever, maybe it's uh, Perez, maybe it's uh, Science, whoever, that that would be uh, cool, and then it'd be interesting as well to see whether or not Mercedes can close that uh, that gap to the, the the top two teams as well. So, plenty of stuff going on there
0: definitely. And I still have full confidence that it's going to work its way out. And I think that the rules and the regulations and the changes are good for the sport. The other thing that I've come to realize in the last couple of days and weeks and months, actually, I shouldn't say months, but since the beginning of the season is that This is the first year, and full disclosure, I I am a fan of Lewis Hamilton and I'm a fan of other drivers on the grid, but it's been really easy to be a fan of Lewis Hamilton. And in turn, it's been really easy to enjoy the sport since 2014 because one of the guys that you cheer for has been so successful. And it's easier to watch sports knowing that your team, your guy, is likely to compete for a title and is going to compete for podiums every single week. So one of the adjustments that I've had to make is Going into every race weekend, knowing Mm -hmm. that, hey, this guy that I've cheered for for eight years probably isn't going to score a podium. And I'm working to get back to that place where I was pre-2007 when I watched Formula One, not necessarily cheering for any specific team or any specific driver because, you know, cheering for a specific driver was kind of unique to me for this period of time that lewis has been in the sport but i was a fan of the sport long before lewis was here and to be fair i'm a fan of formula one before i'm a fan of of lewis hamilton Mm -hmm. but i need to adjust and recalibrate the way that i absorb and consume formula one and i need to find ways to enjoy the race even when lewis isn't necessarily being super competitive and i think there are lots of things that are really fascinating and obviously one of the things that i've started to follow now is hey can max repeat and can he get some vengeance for the fact that the title that he won last year and we've talked about this he won it but it was obviously colored in a way that he wouldn't have necessarily wanted and it was tainted because of the outcome and the way that that outcome happened but i'm looking at things like hey Max chasing a championship this year could be a really exciting story or Charles chasing a championship could be a really interesting narrative to talk about for the next six or seven months. But yeah, it's been an adjustment for me. It's been an adjustment for me.
1: You are with Lewis where I am with Manchester United. So, you know, it can be a a bit of a difficult place at, at times. Okay, final question comes from uh, Alexander Norg. Uh, question is maybe a discussion topic for the pod. If the talk about Latifi being dropped from Williams holds water, could this be a scenario? Michael Latifi ups his already big investment in McLaren Group for an exchange for a seat for Nicholas. Considering the financial struggles of McLaren, this could uh, be a cash injection that keeps McLaren name alive and not a takeover as suggested by the VW Group. This is an interesting one because uh, you know a year or two ago I might have uh, poo pooed this one and say yeah it's never going to to happen he's not going to buy his way in but it's it's interesting cost cap or not uh reduced costs or not in formula one i mean mclaren have obviously had issues and i mean they're one of the teams that really pushed hard for this really really low uh you know ceiling to the cost cap i mean zach brown going back a couple of years i mean he really push for that saying okay well we're starting at what was it 145 or 140 and then you know where, where they ended up i think was 130 million dollars i mean mclaren and zach brown really uh, pushed for that i mean i don't know if there, there's anything really to this but out of all the teams out there i mean i would say that a potential might be there just you know because of the financial concerns i mean let's not forget that they actually sold off the the mtc as part of that whole all the problems that they've been having
0: I think this is a <clears throat> sorry I think this is an interesting an interesting question. I I don't believe that and Alexander, thanks so much for the question. You're an incredibly loyal listener and thank you for all the support. I don't think that this is necessarily a realistic outcome. I think Michael Latifi's investment in McLaren was an incredibly smart one. It's rumored or understood that he owns up to a quarter of that team. The wow. balance of the organization being owned by the Bahraini sovereign wealth funds. So they've got all the financial backing they could possibly need. I think their road car division probably needs some additional outside investment to shore up the stability of that side of the business. But I think that the McLaren Formula One group is ultimately in a really great place. And I think some of the major sponsors that they've struck up agreements with in the last couple of months and in the last year have really, really assured their place on the grid. Now, I'm not th- I'm not saying for a second that they wouldn't entertain a, a, a significant cash offer from a group like Audi. I just don't think that they're in dire financial straits, to be completely honest. And I also don't believe they would necessarily be open to providing Nicholas with a seat. Certainly not on the team and probably not even as a test driver. I think, They've got some very specific visions for what that team is and what it should be. And I don't think that Nicholas is necessarily a part of their vision. And I don't think Zach Brown would let one of their minority owners influence the decision making around who's going to be in their seat. And ultimately, if a seat opened up or if they needed a test driver and Nicholas was the best person available, sure, you consider him. But I don't think they would consider him strictly because Michael Latifi, his dad owns a chunk of the team. It's a great question, though.
1: It is, because I I think that it really sort of um, ignites that kind of conversation about the role of the pay driver in Formula One, in contemporary Formula One. I mean, a couple of years ago, sure, I mean, if you came with a big sponsorship uh, package and... They drove a, a dump truck full of money up to the McLaren factory. Sure, you know the, the, the chances are they might take you on as a, as a driver. Now, I, I'm, you know, I'm just using McLaren here because we're talking about them specifically because that's the way that uh, Alexander addressed the, uh, the 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 question. But nowadays, what with the, um, the the budget being so much smaller, the budget cap being 130 million dollars, I mean, long gone are the days of teams like Mercedes and Ferrari spending you know 500 million dollars plus per year on a car. And uh, they, they, they just can't uh, do it anymore. I mean, I, I'm not really sure what uh, some of the smaller teams were spending in those days. I mean, it was still probably in the order of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, but it wasn't right. going to be half right. a billion like the like the big teams were. So, I mean, the, the, the fact is they're all spending less money and they probably were at least spending this before. I mean, for, for some teams, it's going to be in and around what they are spending already. For some teams, it's going to be a drastic uh, reduction. I mean, I think that's in part, um, you know, a reflection of what we're seeing uh, with the struggles that Mercedes has had uh, this year, because they can't necessarily spend their way out of an issue that uh, they're having that uh, they could have done in the in the past because the, the, the resources are limited. You know, items on the car are locked. I mean, you just can't develop them. So there's a, a lot of things uh, going on there. But yeah, it, it's a great question. But just in general, I, I don't think the McLaren really was that sort of historic kind of team that you would exe- expect to see a pay driver pop up in uh, anyways. No, no,
0: no. And I want to share a story too. So, for those of you that don't know, and I've been teasing this for a couple of months, we're going to do a Formula One book review podcast in June with a very special guest. We're going to line up a bunch of our favorite F1 books and and talk about them on a podcast.
1: We think it'll be a lot of fun. Now, hey, wait, wait. Why so, didn't I've I been, get the invite for this? Have I been excluded? oh I'm sorry did you want to be a part of this
0: (laughs) but as as part of the prep for this podcast I've actually been reading a lot of F1 books and one of my favorites is called The Mechanic by Mark Priestley and Mark Priestley was a mechanic for McLaren during the peak of their financial extravagance and this period was the very tail end of the tobacco era in F1 and there was a period in F1 where some of the top tier teams like McLaren before they ran into some of their financial difficulties and the last decade or decade and a half. They were absolutely rolling in tobacco (laughs) money. That money was no expense for this team. But there's a great excerpt at the beginning of this book talking about the fact that they had a test team. So Formula One teams used to have test teams. So you would have dedicated cars for testing, you would have a dedicated group or crew of mechanics Mm -hmm. for testing, and you would obviously have dedicated full-time drivers for testing purposes. And they write in this book that they had developed a new part for the car. They assumed that based on their wind tunnel and based on their computational fluid dynamics, their computer simulations, that this part was going to benefit the car, but they needed to be able to test it in the real world, which isn't something that can happen today. So what they did was they took the car to an air strip with their test crew but the track (laughs) was soaking wet so they're like well what are we going to do we need to be able to get proof today we need to be able to get data that this part that we want to apply to the actual race cars for the next grand prix works but we can't do it if the track is wet so they called up a helicopter company to fly a helicopter (laughs) to the track to fly low over the track to dry it like this is where formula one was 15, twenty years ago, oh my that God. a team was so flushed for cash that hey, the track's wet. Let's hire a helicopter to come and dry it. So again, <laughs> does the that not is like? From-
1: sorry, I was going to say, does that not like sound like something you would ask like your five year old uh, You know, what would you like to see totally. that would make Formula One be totally. really, really cool? I'd like to see a big helicopter fly over and dry out the track when it's raining. You know, that's that's insane. And I feel like Formula One's getting back to that period of big tobacco money. The
0: difference is it's principally coming from big technology. So we're Mm -hmm. seeing companies like obviously Workforce and Salesforce, et cetera, et cetera, sign on. And I'm also deeply uncomfortable with all these uh, grifter, crypto and (laughs) NFT companies get involved with the sport. But what they're doing is pumping a ton of money into the sport. And the difference now versus 10 or 15 or 20 years ago is the teams would take all that money and they'd invest it in developing the car. Well, now, no matter how much money they earn, they can only invest $140 million in in the development of the car. So the rest of it for these teams is principally pure profit, which is another reason I'm not particularly worried about McLaren because now there's this really rigid cap and they keep signing more and more and more sponsors. So all of the money they earn above, say, $170 million, which accounts for the car development and their drivers and their top three most expensive employees, everything that they earn beyond $170 million, well, that just goes to pay off debt. In his profit. So I'm not particularly worried about McLaren at this point. But again, the book, The Mechanic, written by Mark Priestley. Phenomenal stuff.
1: Cool, cool. Sounds like a, a good read. Can't wait to get my invite or if not i at least look forward <laughs> you're, to <laughs> you're gonna get an invite you're gonna get an invite i promise i promise yeah, that's just uh, so awkward i gotta like i gotta beg my own co-host here to, to invite <laughs> me on my own podcast the co-host
0: of your show by the way the co-host of your show can i be involved in an episode of my own show like
1: uh, yes, i feel like can. i just woken up in the twilight zone or something like that but uh, <laughs> it's all good all right well that's uh that's awesome i i don't have anything else tonight unless there was anything else in the in the mailbag, sir.
0: No, I think that's good. I just want to remind everyone that you recently recorded a really great interview with Tim Haraney that we're probably going to air in the next couple of weeks. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Amber Belkin, the fantastic young Canadian NASCAR driver. That one we're going to drop, I think, think on Sunday, because of course we don't have a Grand Prix this weekend. So in lieu of a Grand Prix, you're going to get a really great interview. Um, And as mentioned, we've got some other great interviews coming up. We're going to release our book review podcast in, in June or July. Yeah. Lots of exciting stuff. You know, our commitment this year was that we were going to create lots of great content. And I feel really good that we probably haven't gone a week this year without releasing at least two episodes and some weeks we've done three i done think three. which yeah. is really cool yeah.
1: yeah it's awesome yeah looking forward to, to dropping uh, some of these other ones into the feed uh, coming up soon especially on the, the 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 off weeks when there's nothing going on in the track it's nice to have something ex- extra to listen to uh on a monday morning Anyways, thank you all very much uh, for listening tonight. Thank you uh, for all of those that uh, popped into the live stream on uh, YouTube. If you want to get in touch with us, easiest way to do so is on Twitter at F one pod where you send us an email at scuderiaf one pod at gmail.com. And on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, have a great weekend and we'll talk to you again very, very soon. Bye for now.